Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place where we drill into the lifeblood of the trucking industry, and that's oil. Today, we're talking about it at a much higher price level than we have in a long, long time. We're also going to be talking final mile real estate with our guest, Tom LaSalvia of Moody's Analytics, Reese. But yes, let's turn back to the price of oil and the price of diesel. It's a remarkable turnaround in just the past two weeks to look at two key numbers the price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange settled at a little more than $1.20 per gallon on November 13th. Since then, as I record this, it's up about $0.18 cents a gallon. The price of WTI crude is up about 9 to $10 since the end of October. That's per barrel. The price of Brent crude, the world benchmark, is up about 7 to $8 per barrel in that time. Diesel has moved up far more than WTI or Brent. The spread between Brent and WTI—excuse me—the spread between Brent and diesel was down to about 18.5 cents per gallon, but it's tacked on about three cents a gallon in just the past few trading days. That doesn't sound like much, but that's actually a lot of movement and not a lot of time. We've talked before about how the diesel market in the U.S. and the world has been burdened by excessive inventories, but we also talked about how a drop in diesel output has had a dramatic impact on getting those inventories numbers down closer to normal over the past few weeks. One of the reasons for that has been the huge amount of refinery maintenance that has gone on this fall. Refinery maintenance season tends to be around February to March after heating oil season is done or toward October and November when the heavy drum summer driving season is over and it's time to get ready to make those heating products that are needed for the upcoming winter. A very good research company called Energy Aspects has some solid data on this just the other day. Worldwide, the consulting group estimated that about 9.5 million barrels per day of refining capacity was off the market in October. Compare that to its estimate for what is coming up in April, just 3.7 million barrels per day. And that is clearly one of the reasons why diesel prices have climbed faster than the rise in crude and driven retail prices up as well. The world has not had a lot of a lot the world has had a lot less refining capacity to make diesel for a couple of months. As far as crude, its movement is being driven primarily by the macroeconomic trends that have seen equity prices climb to record highs. The good news on coronavirus vaccines is clearly a key driver of that, as well as central bank policies that keep pumping money into the economy. The end result? The weekly retail diesel price published by the Department of Energy and the Energy Information Administration is up about 11 cents in just the past four weeks to $2.42. Remember, that is the price that is used as the basis for almost all fuel surcharges except for those in California. You know, we have a data series here at FreightWaves called Fuels that tracks the spread between retail and wholesale diesel prices. And I can tell you that it's right about where it should be. So the increase in the spot market that's being translated into increases in the wholesale market are moving the retail market up at about a normal rate. So don't expect any catch up to the upside or downside. Prices at the pump are about where they should be given what the price, the spot price is and given what the wholesale price is. I think the biggest takeaway here is that we've gotten some abnormal things out of the diesel market. Inventories are way down from where they were. We've got a lot of refinery maintenance that is now behind us. And you see that while diesel spreads relative to crude have tightened, they're getting back a little more toward historic norms. It appears we may be coming out of a crazy time in the diesel market where the world had way too much of it compared to its needs. And the price of diesel compared to crude was down near all-time lows. That seems to be behind us. 
It should mean that for now, the price of diesel will move a lot more in tandem with the price of crude. That's not necessarily good news for consumers because it had been trending weaker for several months, but I think it's safe to say no more. We're going to turn our attention in the second half of Drilling Deep to one key part of the final mile of freight delivery. Where is all that warehouse space going to come from? We've got with us Thomas LaSalvia. He's the senior economist at Moody's, Moody's Analytics Reese. Tom and his colleagues recently put together some forecasts on where industrial rents and by extension warehouse rents are headed. He's joining us here today on Drilling Deep. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Happy Thanksgiving to you, to all your loved ones, to everyone listening. Um, really a great opportunity. Actually, I had, I've in the past taken a look at all of your great content on the website, as well as the podcast here. You guys just do incredible, incredible stuff um, for for a lot of different uh, stakeholders in, in our industry, as well as the rest of the trucking space, the shipping, distribution, where, you know, all of that. And so kudos to all of you guys. And once again, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for all that. And I didn't even ask you to say that. You know, we <laughs> didn't prep that at all, did we? So anyway, uh, so I, I got a report from Moody's. It was sent over to me and that's what spurred me to do this podcast. And, you know, what, what I found interesting looking at that and then reading back to a report that you wrote earlier this year, I believe in June, is that the market for industrial properties, which includes warehouse and storage, actually was maybe a little bit weak. I guess I had thought that it was just on fire for years. I think that perception was out there that it had been strong, but you clearly didn't see it that way. Well, my answer to that is it's nuanced, right? Like any good economist, I like to say, hey, on this hand, it's, it's this. On that hand, it's that. In this circumstance, the nuance really comes from the supply and the demand here. The demand is strong. The demand has been strong for many years. It's just we saw a huge amount of supply inventory growth from 2017 on. In fact, you know, after the Great Recession, inventory was trending at 30 million square feet per year of, of new completion. 2017 through this year, through next year, we're looking at it averaging about 130 million square feet. So it's just, to me, it's more of a supply side story where a lot of speculative development has taken place in the last few years. And when you get all of that speculative development, no matter how great demand is, you know, you're going to see vacancies inch up a little bit. So in 2017, we saw vacancy at about 9%. And I'm talking right now warehouse distribution space. And that's, it's, that's nationally, right? What's that? That's nationally, right? Yeah. So national figures right now I'm talking. And that inched up and it's going to probably finish this year around 10.5% uh, through 2021 get to maybe 115 to 12%, but still a lot of that is because of all of this speculative supply that's come on. It's, it's not really a demand issue, even through this pandemic, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more. Yeah, yeah even you're, you're estimated that rents are going to rise at 1.4% in 2022. I mean, that's just, that's barely the rate of inflation. Yeah, so, and once again, you know, we're staying fairly steady, I would say, 
When you look at some of the other sectors, for example, multifamily this past quarter dropped 2% in a quarter. We've never seen that in our 40 years of actually tracking multifamily rents nationally. Uh, for office, we're going to see around a potentially a 10% decline in rents for 2021 through 2021. So anything that is holding steady or rising a little bit over the next couple of years is a pretty solid play, right? It's a pretty solid sector. So once again, a little bit of nuance in looking at those numbers and looking at that forecast. The speculative play, the speculative money that's been pouring into the warehouse sector, is it is it overly simplistic to say it's 100% driven by e-commerce? I know, obviously, overwhelmingly it would be driven by e-commerce, but is it really all there? E-commerce, you're right. Overwhelming, that's where the money has flowed or the rationale for why the money has flowed into this world. I mean, we're up to in some measures, around 20% of all retail transactions being e-commerce. And I know a lot of that is due to the pandemic, of course. Uh, Last year, the number was trending closer to 11, 12%. So we saw a big jump. The Band-Aid's been ripped off for many people who otherwise would not have uh, gone over to the e-commerce world. And so that's a big, big part of it. We actually have a partner within the warehousing space that likes to make this statement here is to generate the same revenue for an e-commerce only firm retailer versus a brick and mortar, you need three times the amount of warehouse square footage, right? And that's due to just everything from packaging to the amount of diversity of products to the inventory you have to hold. So e-commerce is Definitely, definitely going to be a huge, huge part of that growth in the industrial space and that growth in the warehouse uh, distribution space. So, yeah, the overwhelming majority of the demand, as well as the speculative supply, as well as the the needed supply, is is the growth of e-commerce and. You know, you can make arguments about some of the other rationales for growth in distribution and warehouse. Um, You could make arguments about the locations of where these are. For example, you know, you could go into a conversation about last mile distribution, the race to get to one day shipping to two hour shipping to maybe 15 minute shipping from a drone that's located a mile away. I don't know, maybe that's where we're headed. But I mean, that's also going to drive the demand for space and the drive the demand for space in areas where it otherwise hadn't been in the past. So um, I would gather, I think we could take away from all this is that companies that are looking to expand their e-commerce footprint, at least for now, are not going to be stymied by a lack of available warehouse space. No, no, for sure that, you know, once again, that vacancy rate climbing from 9% in 2017, probably going to reach around 11 12% by the end of next year. There's going to be space available. I mean, in certain areas, there's certainly competition. 
Um, we've noticed that in areas that are growing or are forecasted to grow from a population perspective, from an income perspective, that those areas are going to be more popular, but they're also going to gain more space. I mean, when you look at metros like a Houston, a Dallas, an Atlanta, a Nashville, these are all areas that are not only hubs and have great you know, airports, uh, great infrastructure in terms of highways, uh, often rail as well. But they also are part of these, these smile states, right? As we like to call them, where there is this movement or this migration to these states and these metropolitan areas. So you're getting not only this excellent infrastructure for warehousing space and for shipping and distribution, but you also have areas where the local populace is growing, not only in the number of households, but also in the relative uh, socioeconomic status of those households. You call them smile states. I don't know that I understand the reference. Ah, all right. So smile states, you could think of, typically we like to think of the Virginia, down into North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham in particular. And then you trace out a smile through, you know, going into Texas, right? Well, kind of through Tennessee into Texas. And then you kind of bring the smile up through New Mexico, Arizona and into like Denver, right? We, we could talk about California and that has its own set of market dynamics, but that's the smile we typically refer to. Okay, interesting. Interesting. So, the um, you talked about uh, the speculative money that's come into this sector. It's certainly added a lot of space enough that you see softness in rents. Is the speculative money looking at starting to dry up, or is it still there? Well, in terms of our construction pipeline, and I was just checking into this the other day for a different project I'm working on, and the pipeline's still very strong. You know, we're seeing planned, we're seeing proposed developments in all of those different markets that I was just talking about. So these, you know, these will typically take, depending on the complexity, industrial space is usually quicker than say an office building or a big multifamily property, you know, but still it's coming online into 2021, 2022, 2023. And as long as the those with dry powder, those with the, the capital ready to go see value in industrial. And as long as e-commerce continue to give rationale to why we're going to need that uh, distribution and warehousing space, then I don't think there's any real end to this. Is there a, maybe a slight slowdown? If you look at our forecasts for inventory gains nationally, you know we're looking at it dropping on average to maybe... 75 million square feet rather than 130 million on average by 2024, 2025. And so that's going to help bring vacancies back down into the 9%. Um, Actually, by 2025, I think we drop below 10% vacancy again. And that's because we're still going to see really strong absorption. So we're seeing really strong demand. And at the same time, you know, supply is is definitely strong. It's going to continue to be strong, but it's not going to be quite the strength that has been from 2017 um, through this year and through next year. One little interesting anecdote here for for you regarding the supply side of things. One last one, because I'm talking about it a lot and I could keep talking about it because it's so interesting in my opinion. 
all of our other major sectors are going to realize only about 60% of the inventory gain we had estimated at the end of 2019 for 2020, whereas industrial is going to see space increase by maybe 5% over our initial estimates. So all of the money, even through the pandemic, has been flowing into getting industrial space out there. Right, so these sectors would be other, th- other things like office, and they're certainly going to constrict with more people working from home or not not necessarily all the time, at least sometimes they're going to constrict, but warehouse is the one kind of bright, bright shining star in the commercial real estate field. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've had you know non-essential business, non-essential construction earlier this year, and it really you know shut down some things and we saw a lack of development. We saw a slowdown. But whenever we were able to get those construction crews back out there, the projects they went to were the industrial projects, not the other projects, not the multifamily, not the office, certainly not the retail. Yeah, and the the barriers to entry are fairly low. I'm reading a section from your report back in June, quoting here, a typical warehouse distribution building sports relatively simple dimensions, few windows, one to three stories at most, and certainly less ornate designs than most multi-floor office buildings. So if you want to get into it, it's not that complex. You don't need the world's leading architects to do it, do you? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's going to bring the, say, time to completion much lower, right? I mean, some of these projects can be thrown up in six months, you know, certainly a year, depending on the complexity, depending on the location, the red tape, of course, there's always that discussion. But yeah, I mean, and anything, you know, when we're looking at the supply side of commercial real estate, there's a couple of big things that go into it that allow for greater growth. Um, you know, we always see greater growth in, say, the state of Texas due to the lack of regulation. And so you see a lot more supply, a lot more speculative supply because it's going to keep that cost down. But to go back to your point, because, you know, we don't need we don't need world famous architects to be building our industrial space and certainly not our warehouse and distribution space. We do need logistics. We do need people that understand how to get big trucks in and out of these places, right? And how to design the doors and design the interior working space so it's a good environment. But you're absolutely correct. That lower cost, that lower cost of entry allows you to have more speculation, which is going to allow or it's going to create a situation where the vacancy rates will always be higher than some of the other sectors, right? Like right now, multifamily vacancy rates trend closer to, to 5% nationally, whereas in distribution and warehouse trend closer to 10%. It does not mean that distribution and warehouse is worse. It just means that the way the, the supply and the demand aspects work lend itself to a higher vacancy rate, and that's going to hold down rent growth overall. Yeah. And when you take the big picture, you mentioned earlier about e-commerce being 20% of all sales. I don't think it's even that high. But even if you tacked on 10 percentage points to that, the amount of warehouse space needed to go from, let's say, 20 to 30, it's just a phenomenal amount. Exactly. Exactly. I go back to that three times number, right? So, I mean, if if there is a belief that we're going to settle maybe within five years, maybe within 10 years at I don't know, 25%, maybe that's too high, maybe that's too low of all retail is going to be done e-commerce. Um, that's just going to require just really hundreds of thousands of square footage 
uh, hundreds of millions of square footage, billions of space of square footage to actually accomplish that. And so, you know, I think that is coming at some level and that's going to really maintain this, I don't know, maybe, maybe the right way to phrase industrial is this slow and steady growth. Um, is it, is it pandemic proof? It's kind of shown that it is, is it recession proof? Maybe not completely. If, if, you know, consumer spending dries up, then even e-commerce is going to take a hit in addition to brick and mortar retail and spending. Um, and so therefore distribution warehouse space will be less needed, but overall it certainly has held up stronger than the other sectors that we study. Yeah. Now, of course, one of the things is where you're going to put all this stuff. And I know they've converted a lot of different things into, into e, uh, e-commerce facilities. I know right near me, there's a former supermarket that's right now being uh, reconstituted as an Amazon distribution center, kind of a real final mile distribution center. One of the obvious potential areas, and I know it's been done, would be taking malls that have been decimated by the uh, retail what we call a revolution, what we call what we'll call it retail revolution. They're not needed as malls anymore, so they become warehouse distribution centers, or, or at least some kind of facility in that fi- e-commerce final mile. Is that going to be a big source of supply? Not a huge source of supply. We've actually done some studies on this recently, looking at what's realistic in terms of the actual space as well as the location of these. And so we'll, we'll take the positive view or the view that there will be some repurposing of some of this retail space, some of this mall space. You know, when you look at some of these big anchor stores, you know, some of the big old Sears, JCPenney's, Macy's, and they do have their own, you know, entrances. And some of those entrances could certainly be converted to really support some of the needs for uh, distribution warehousing space. Um, Also on the positive, many of these are located on the, you know, the highway exchanges, right? The on-ramps, the off-ramps, which would allow trucks to get on and off as necessary without having to go through, you know, smaller urban streets, right? So there's that side of it. So yeah, so some of the malls are going, and some of the space is going to be potentially very valuable to those within the warehouse distribution industry to make those conversions. Um, You could certainly see some of those big anchor stores that are no longer, you know, filled by the Macy's, JCPenney, Sears as having that conversion. But I'm going to take maybe the, the opposing view for a second, play devil's advocate for a second. Sears still has stores operating, Penny's still has stores operating, and Macy's definitely still has stores operating, regardless of their bankruptcy status or their credit rating status. You know, they still are in locations, and they are in locations that they believe that are growing locations, that are locations where these stores still have the potential to do well over time. Well, Amazon and others like Amazon want to put their distribution and warehouse space near population centers that are going to be buying stuff often. But that's the same places that Macy's wants to remain in as well. So there is some competition for that space. 
Um, so there's a little bit of interesting nuance within that story as well, that you're absolutely correct that there will be some conversion, but you have to look at, you know, the, still the fundamentals of why we put distribution warehouse space where we put it, right? It's got to be near the population centers that it's going to serve. It has to have the right fundamental infrastructure right around it to service the trucks and the other types of, of um, important needs of the industry. And it has to have generally the right amount of space uh, to support that. So uh, any last thoughts about uh, things that are unexpected that might develop in this sector that we haven't talked about today? I'm trying to think of any curveballs that might be out there that you know, this is a, an industry, the, the e-commerce final mile industry, that is one of the ones that fairly thrived in the pandemic. Uh, did that surprise you? Well, early in early on in the pandemic, we, we got the viewpoint that this pandemic is just going to accelerate what had been happening already. So I think the rise in e-commerce, we, we know it was happening. I think the pace that it increased surprised me a little bit. The willingness, or although, you know, when you really think about it, there was a need. It's not only a willingness, there was a need by some to actually buy e-commerce, even groceries to buy e-commerce, which I still don't even do. I still like to go into the store and touch my avocado to make sure I can actually make guacamole out of it that night. So, I mean, you know, but there was a Band-Aid ripped off for many. So was I surprised maybe a little bit at the pace or the steepness of the slope associated with the rise in e-commerce? Um, but overall, it definitely accelerated the trend that we were going anyway. I, I think one other thing to just mention here is the, the decision for grocers, for apparel, for especially necessities. So grocers and housewares that are more necessities to life and the rethinking of the just in time now versus the just in case right and i think there's something there that we haven't touched on upon yet today in this talk is you know we were really running lean right we were on just in time and and we were proud of that to be just in time is you know we didn't have to have the warehouse space to hold things for a while, because when you hold inventory, it costs money, right? We know that, and you need more space. I think the pandemic has exposed that we need a balance. We have to rethink just in time and just in case and have a little bit more balance there and a little more focus on you know, these what-if scenarios and maybe having a little more inventory than we maybe wouldn't have. And if that's the case, that's another big positive for distribution and warehouse CRE. Yeah, somebody's got to hold all that stuff. So anyway, we want to thank Tom Salvia of Moody's Analytics, Reese, for joining us today on, on excuse me, on Drilling Deep. Uh, Tom, please join us again. Absolutely. A real pleasure talking with you, John. And once again, thanks for all the work you guys do, your website, this podcast, really great stuff. So happy to join whenever you, whenever you need me. All right. Thanks very much. So you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms that are out there. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again. Mm-hmm.